We had a CVS test, which was normal. The doctor called after and said, congratulations, you're having a boy, everything looks great. Every appointment, we would find out a new thing that was off, but that didn't quite mean anything until they had time to watch it. At 30 weeks, they started to see that there was no swallowing. Through the course of this pregnancy, we passed over an imaginary line that we didn't know about. No one, no one mentioned it. It was never brought up. I think people minimize pain as they understand it different ways. Our doctor explained that our baby, if we gave birth to a baby, would choke for a few minutes before dying. That sounded certainly like suffering to us, and we didn't want to do that. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. The culture around obstetrics is still very much this like hyper-investment in our hope. I think we have to afford pregnant patients the dignity of all the information available. We're asking people to remove themselves from someone else's healthcare decision-making process. Erica and Garen were 30 weeks into a complicated pregnancy when they learned that the prognosis was much more serious than their doctors had earlier assessed. Erica was denied an abortion due to New York's 24-week cutoff, so the couple traveled to Colorado to terminate her pregnancy. Their experience with New York's abortion law and the realization about how others were affected by it led them to share their story publicly and advocate for reform. They founded the RHA Vote Campaign, the Grassroots Home for the Reproductive Health Act, a bill that decriminalized abortion in New York and brought the state's regulation of abortion in line with Roe v. Wade. They worked alongside a statewide coalition, and in January 2019, New York finally passed the RHA after being stalled for almost a decade. After seeing the power of patient narratives firsthand, they began organizing later abortion patients across the country through the organization Patient Forward. They are also parents to a two and a half year old daughter, Pepper. Thank you both for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Mm -hmm. Happy to do it. Thanks for having us. So the topic of abortions later in pregnancy is something that makes a lot of people feel very uncomfortable. And I think the situations that lead people to seek out later abortions are ones that a lot of people can't or don't want to imagine themselves in. Can you talk me through your pregnancy that you ended up going out of state to terminate at 32 weeks? Sure. And uh, Garen, I'll let you start. Yeah. So um this this was our second pregnancy. Um, we had had previously had a miscarriage at ten weeks, and we didn't sort of get any information about why that happened. Obviously, I think that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were a little bit, you know, in a way like the the sort of spell of like pregnancies being perfect, like they are on TV, had been broken for us already going into this pregnancy, and we were. Um, entering in, into it sort of with our eyes wide open. Um, and, you know, but it, but in our minds, we had this, our previous miscarriage had been at 10 weeks. And so we were just sort of focused on getting to 10 weeks and getting past that. Um, 
<clears throat> and then I think we had had a conversation with a genetic counselor um, to do screening and, and some of that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we didn't think there was going to be anything particularly wrong with this pregnancy. Um, yeah. And- in fact, the first trimester was perfectly normal. Um, we had a CVS test, which was normal. Um, the doctor called after and said, congratulations, you're having a boy, everything looks great. So after that CVS, we had probably a week or two of feeling like things were great. And I will mm-hmm. say the only thing that, that sort of came up is that, yeah, the, there was, it, it, you know, there's little things like the the cord, umbilical cord implantation. Um, it was a velamentous cord implantation, which I'm not a doctor, so I can't really describe much beyond that. But, um, you it know, it's a patient that they keep an eye on. Um, and Erica had a bicornuate uterus, which was sort of discovered during the CVS. Uh, but again, that just means that they like keep an eye on things. It, it, it wasn't cause for alarm. Right. Nothing, um, nothing to expect that not, yeah. nothing to make you think that there would be a problem really. Right, with the pregnancy. right, right, right. right. Um, and I have to say, I can't remember exactly when, but at some point we, you know, there was a blood test um, and they, they found a high alpha fetal protein. Um, and that, that was the first moment where I think, you know, Erica's regular OB um, sort of had, she called Erica and there was sort of a really grave tone in her voice. And she said, you know, this is often linked to sort of really poor outcomes for pregnancies. And and she was worried. So she, she sent us to the maternal fetal medicine specialists pretty quickly. Um, And we went in for kind of an early anatomy scan the point. next day, actually, um, yeah. when she called and said, you know, we got um, your AFP is four times the normal range. Um, the first concern we have is spina bifida. We're going to get you in. I've already called the MFM and they've cleared the decks for you in the morning. So like your appointment is in the morning. So it's mm-hmm. like we found this out and we knew it was serious because literally they wanted to see us the next day. And um, so we, we had that for something bad. Yeah. I mean, she was very serious on that call. I mean, she said, I'm so sorry in that call before we had even had the anatomy scan. She just knew that that was a really bad reading. She also said, you know, they're going to do a full um, anatomy scan if they don't find spina bifida, which in our case, they didn't. You know, we went in that next day. They took, you know, over an hour to be really thorough in their measurements and their scan they didn't see any evidence of that. And so she explained to us that in the absence of that diagnosis, it's the high AFP is just kind of correlated with poor outcomes. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. it. It's not that you'll for sure have a bad outcome, but, but your risks of a bad outcome are much higher. Right. So just keep, keep worrying, even though. So just keep worrying. (laughs) Exactly. And at that point, we, that we were sort of transferred to the MFMs. Like they took over primary care. All of our care. Yeah. Um, And so we. Schlepping up to the Upper East Side every other week for full Mm -hmm. anatomy scans. So we were there a lot. I mean, we were getting a lot of, of, 
scans. And I think that's why, you know, that's kind of where we started pretty much right away. As soon as we were transferred to the MFM, every appointment, we would find out a new thing that was off, but that didn't quite mean anything until they had time to watch it. Right. Right. So it was like, you know, we think there might be a clubbed foot. Um, But we're not totally sure because sometimes that's just the position of the foot in that day, you know, so we'll just mark it and check it again in two weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, two weeks go by and they think, you know, maybe it is clubbed. Um, You know, it it looks like it is. It looks like we are going to say that it's clubbed. Two weeks later, you know, I think the other one might be clubbed too. Let's keep watching it. Well, now a month has gone by before they can say, we are looking at bilateral clubbed feet. Um, and so, and then- and so as, as that stuff happened, like, you know, we would, we would say, okay, you know, we're Googling it. We go and talk to, you know, a, someone who does, you know, treats club feet in newborns. A pediatric and, orthopedist yeah. um, and, in the city. You know, we're like, okay, so maybe there's some cute braces that are going to be involved, but that's manageable. Um, totally. Uh, you know, there were clenched fists, um, and no, no one seemed to be particularly worried about that. It was just sort of... Well, before they're clenched, they're closed, right? So they have to have multiple scans of just seeing closed hands before they can think they're not closed, they're clenched. That takes time because, right. you know, you have to see over time that something has not changed, right? I mean, right. that's important. Um, so it was probably, it was a couple of months before they could decide that the closed fit fist was in fact clenched and then over time beginning to turn in, mm-hmm. you know, that, that happened over, over a progression. Um, and so, you know, we were hitting these time markers that we thought were very important because, you know, I think, um, general rule of thumb when it comes to pregnancy, it's, it's all about time, right? So it's like, just hit those time markers that then we have some data that tells us you're most likely going to be coming home with a baby. Um, and so I think we were just so obsessed with the time um, that we maybe weren't as, I mean, we were concerned about all of these indications for sure, but we thought it, we still kept hitting the time. So it felt like we had enough hope to keep going. Yeah. Right. The next, it sounds like the next step was our always ultrasound in two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Ultrasound in three weeks, you know. Yeah. Were you, did, were you referred back to a genetic counselor either after the high AFP or after the initial early anatomy scan? So we had that CVS, which came out everything negative. We had the, the workup where everything, you know, where they didn't see spina bifida and then we didn't really talk to a genetic counselor again until we went in at 30 weeks and they realized that, you know, we had turned in clenched fists, bilateral club feet. And at 30 weeks, they started to see that there was no swallowing. My mm-hmm. fluid was really, really high and growth had just fallen off a cliff. I mean, all of the growth had been low side of normal. And at this point, it really dropped off the cliff of, of what is normal. So the high fluid with the no growth combined with all of these physical indications told them something was 
seriously wrong. And that's when the geneticist came back in. And, you know, I'll say our doctor, when, when we had that very bad appointment at 30 weeks, he wanted to talk to the, the, he picked up the phone and talked to the geneticist right away. And he sent us home and said, we need to talk. Like our team needs to talk. I want more time with the geneticist to look over everything. And then we will see you back in a week to figure out like what our plan is. And take Am I remembering that right, Garen? Yeah. And so, right, and so right. what happened at that point is that Erica actually had to go away for a business trip that week. Um, but, but, you know, this, this had been, we'd been, ex- we'd been getting like not great news and then suddenly got like awful, awful news. Um, this was bad. I mean, the, the air in the room totally changed. Our doctor who had been very hopeful throughout the entire pregnancy was now very concerned. I think he knew, well, I think he knew that. that he knew at that point. That was, was, that was a different pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But, but during that week, I got a call from uh, the genetic counselor and, and that, that conversation, um, I, again, Erica was on a, a business trip and so therefore like I was available and I, I talked to the genetic counselor and, and, and we sort of talked through like, you know, actually, let me go back real quick. Mm-hmm. When we got this bad scan, the first thing they did was say, okay, we are going to do a, um, amniocentesis Amnio. right now. Right. So it, you know, it was like five o'clock at the doctor's office on the Upper East Side. Most of the staff in the, in the, in the place had gone home. Our doctor who had never, we'd never seen actually touch or treat anyone. He's just sort of like a guy thinking about stuff and behind a desk. Um, mm-hmm. He, he did the amnio himself um, and very quickly. And then the, the genetic counselor stayed and she walked the, the test up to the lab herself. She like canceled her evening plans and like mm-hmm. waited for it to be finished and then walked it up herself to make sure, you know, they were just trying to make sure that we got information as quickly as possible, even though right. I think they knew that like we wouldn't get the results for a little In while. time for it to um, weigh on our, you know, our on our course of care. Yeah. Um, but they still wanted to get it going as soon as possible, just so at that point they could just get any information that they yeah. could. Yeah. And so yeah. I, um, so I got a call from the genetic counselor um, in this sort of like intervening week. And uh, she and I talked about the, the things that it could be given the indications. And, and she was like, you know, this, this could be anything from like really, really, really awful and bad to like super, super awful and bad. Like there's no, there's no good or moderate outcome here. Um, And and I, I, you know, she was like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's, it's, it's going to be a viable pregnancy. We won't get the tests back in time to like really be able to make a decision about that. A lot of people in, in a situation like this, um, you know, we, we refer them to Colorado. And that was the first time that anyone had ever mentioned Colorado. Um, or abortion. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to ask the first. So, and uh, just to go back with yeah. when you had your um, anatomy scan at 16 weeks after the high AFP, did they offer you amniocentesis at that point? I think they 
I, I have to say, I can't remember. I, I think I that can't we, totally remember either. Yeah. I mean, it's really genetics trivia at this point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From my perspective, is like, oh, I'm surprised they didn't do that earlier. But yeah, that's yeah. interesting that, um, you know, they were hopeful, but not that the option of termination wasn't wasn't brought up to you. Although I can see that it's it's hard to bring that up while saying it's probably fine. Come back in two weeks. <laughs> well, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that, and and I'll say um, I've started to do more work within the provider community, which is really important to me. Um, I'm on an advisory board with Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine now. Um, you know, we work with physicians for reproductive health. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important that we have these conversations. I think that OB is in a way, I think um, the culture around obstetrics is still very much kind of old school. Um, you know, this like hyper investment in our hope um, mm -hmm. at the expense of, you know, the most modern healthcare available, because I think it's, you know, we're talking, we're asking them to have tricky, uncomfortable conversations um, with patients, and some of whom, you know, a provider might think could be really offended by the conversation. It's not a reason to not have that conversation, though. Um, you know, I think we have to afford pregnant patients, the dignity of all the information available. Um, something else kind of I think that's very relevant to all of this is that almost exactly a year before we were going through this, I had had brain surgery. Um, and, you know, you get the worst case scenario on day one. You know, they say, listen, you know, you could you're going to need brain surgery. You could die. Right. I mean, think mm -hmm. of any other medical scenario where they don't lead with worst case scenario in obstetrics. It's not until you're like far down the forest, you know, that they even mention in hushed tones that there might be a negative outcome here that might the treatment of which might involve abortion um, for people who want to be pregnant and want to have a child. That is the worst case scenario. Um, and it has to become a more integrated part of care, um, I think, because you know, it, it just, because it, it is what it is. I mean, you know, it just, it, it is in fact, um, you know, a treatment. And I do wish it had been brought up earlier. At, you know, even if it was just, we were just so shocked and blindsided that that would be a possible treatment. And I look mm -hmm. back now and I'm just so surprised at my shock, right? Because now, um, you know, it's just such a ubiquitous part of our lives now that it's just so wild to me that we, it was just so far out of the realm of what we were even thinking about or considering. Um, and I, I imagine yeah. that, you know, every time you have an appointment with an OB, but then an MFM who says, come back in two weeks and doesn't bring it up, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, expect, you expect a medical provider to present you with the medical options, you know, that are right. within their specialty, even if it makes them uncomfortable. So, um, yeah, I, I, that is, I understand like how that happens, but, um, yeah, definitely problematic for it to be brought up to you, um, you know, at such a late stage when it does mean needing to go out of state. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the other thing is that, you know, we, through, through the course of this pregnancy, we passed over an imaginary line that we didn't know about. No mm -hmm. one, no one mentioned it. It was never brought up. And, um, but it ended up being quite relevant and significant to our lives in that pregnancy and my health. You know, it was a real, 
when we finally, you know, decided to terminate the pregnancy, it was quite a rigmarole for our MFM in New York, Dr. Hearn in Colorado, who we were ultimately referred to, and my brain surgeon to all get on the same page about my course of care, given the law in New York, not given what was best for my health period and what they would like to do, which is obviously have me close to home where they could all be there. My doctors who knew my health well and were all there, given the law in New York, they had to create, you know, this piecemeal course of care for me. Um, Again, based on a regulation written by, you know, a room full of men in 1970 who didn't know me, didn't know my life, certainly didn't know my medical history, but ultimately it was their, you know, their work in 1970 and their decision on passing a law that ultimately determined what kind of care I could get in 2016 at at the time. Yeah. And also totally uninformed by the kind of information that ultrasounds (laughs) and other, you know, testing can, can provide. Sure. Yeah. So the so the genetic counselor mentioned to you, Garen, over the phone, the possibility of of going to Colorado for a, an abortion even before you gotten these test results back. Yeah, and I th- I think that we knew they they were very clear with us. They were like, "Look, we're not going to get the test results back soon," and and it may be. I mean, I mean, I think we knew that that abortion was a a, a probable outcome of our situation, I think, when we got the bad news. But I think no one, we didn't understand, no one spoke to us about the law or uh-huh. about needing to leave. You know, I think most of us, when we get bad news from a healthcare provider, we assume that they are going to then recommend a course of treatment that they are going to be involved in. Right. Um, and in this situation, they had to say, you know, be, you know, because of the law, now, you know, you can go to Colorado if you want. Yeah, and by the by the way, that'll be incredibly expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we're not even there yet. So they didn't mention cost at all. I didn't find out about the cost till I called Boulder Abortion Clinic myself. They said, "Look, here's a number. Like you have to call them yeah. um, and set this up." And I talked to the most angelic, wonderful woman on this planet named Debbie, who works uh, in Dr. Hearn's office. And she said over the phone, she said, "You know." how far along are you? And I told her and she said, Oh, okay. She said, that is going to cost around $30,000 to do this, um, to do the procedure in our office. Um, because at this point, you know, we're talking about a shot to induce fetal demise and then a labor and delivery. If I was going to do all of that in Hearn's office um, $30,000. When I heard that, I said, well, we can't, we can't do that. Like we just don't have that money. I hung up and just burst into tears because I, I thought that's it. Um, you know, we didn't know about abortion funds then we didn't know about help. We didn't, we just didn't know anything. Um, Mm -hmm. and I heard that amount of money and I just, I said, well, then we are carrying a non-viable pregnancy to term because I, we just literally, there's no version of the world where we could possibly afford that. Um, and then the doctors got on the same page about my course of care because of my history with my brain. 
Dr. Hearn thought that I should actually deliver in a hospital instead Mm -hmm. of his clinic. So given that I needed to deliver in a hospital, they thought it would be best for me to do it close to home so that at least my insurance would cover that part. So the plan was for us to fly to Colorado, go to Hearn's office to get the shot to induce fetal demise, get on a plane that night, fly back to New York that night, then be um, admitted into Sinai the next night because they do inductions overnight. So I had a whole day of basically, you know, just sitting with now, you know, in my mind, a dead baby inside of me waiting to go to the hospital to deliver. Mm -hmm. I go, we go to the hospital that next night where I'm admitted and induced for what ended up being a 30 hour labor and delivery because it was only the shot. They said, so actually it's only going to be 10,000. <laughs> so after hearing 30, 10 felt okay. <laughs> 10, yeah. 10, because again, because we are so hyper fortunate. My mom took $10,000 out of her 401k um, and that's what we used to pay for it. Um, because we needed it to clear so quickly, um, that meant going to her bank, taking out $10,000 of cash, walking it down the street to my bank to put it into my account so that it would clear immediately because we had to immediately get on the plane. And, you know, it it was just all of these these just wacky things that that had to happen to, you know, that we just wouldn't have thought about until we were like having to do them. Um, the whole time though, even then the whole time, Garen and I were looking at each other saying, how, how do other people do this? Like, how do they do this? You know, we, we just like immediately as we were going through these steps in a daze, you know, we, we just kept like realizing all the various points of privilege that were required for us to make this happen. Um, you know, we had doctors who cared about making this happen for us. You know, um, they were, you know, a part of the referral process and they rushed getting all of our records to Dr. Hearn. Um, we could, you know, get last minute plane tickets and last minute hotel. All of our friends and family were very supportive. Um, the two of us were in agreement. We speak English. We are U.S. citizens with um, you know, with IDs so we could fly. Um, flying itself was possible for us because we don't have any, you know, disabilities or medical issues that prevent us from flying. And most importantly, we had access to that $10,000. That is the most important part. And we just, you know, and even getting it from my mom, I mean, that is just, that alone is just unavailable to most Americans um, who we know from, you know, from, economic information from the Federal Reserve, we know that half of Americans are $400 away from total financial ruin, $400 away. The average cost of an early abortion is 500, never mind the later care that we're talking about right now. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it's undoable for most people. Um, and I think that was really, I mean, we were dealing with, of course, this like personal loss and we were, you know, just so shocked and and worried about getting it all done um as as painlessly as possible given the whole the whole scenario but also the whole time we were just like 
putting these pieces together. Um, and we, while we were in Colorado, Garen, as we say, kind of poked the bear. That is uh, Dr. Warren Hearn. He's been around, you know, he's been a doctor for decades and he was, uh-huh. you know, he was at the Supreme court when Roe v. Wade was decided, you know, he's just been around for everything. And, you know, Garen started to talk to him about some of this stuff. You know, we were not in any way political, like the political problem here fully just evaded us at the time because we just were trying to solve this personal problem in the moment. But Garen started to ask Dr. Hearn about some of this and they, I mean, Garen, you, you can pick it up here, but I just feel like you two had a conversation that maybe like immediately radicalized us. um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I think we were certainly struck by the injustice of it. Um, And, and just understanding, I mean, you know, when, when we went to Dr. Hearn's office, you know, there's, there's bulletproof glass there and you have to sort of, you can't bring anything inside. And um, in our case, there weren't any protesters, but obviously that's, that's very common uh, at these clinics. And I think, I think we just started to realize we had like, we had like sort of stepped into this world that we didn't really know anything about. Um, And the, the people in Dr. Hearn's office, uh, Erica mentioned Debbie, but, but everyone that worked there was so kind um, but also in their kindness, I think empowering, and I th- I think that that sort of showed us in this moment that like this this is critical care for people. Um, it 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 has to be available, and it shouldn't be this hard or expensive or impossible. Uh, yeah, really impossible for most people. Yeah. And so we, you know, I I just asked him, you know, I was asking him about about why this was the case and like what you know the, the sort of like harassment that they had faced. And, and, and then there were other things like I, I asked, he, he mentioned that, that often after getting this shot, you know, um, sometimes it can in, it sort of induce or trigger labor. And I asked him, you know, as we're flying back to New York, if we're on the plane and Erica goes into labor, what do we do? And he said, you get them to land the plane. Hmm. And so I was just struck by how unsafe that was. Right. Um, and, and it's not unsafe because abortion is unsafe. It's unsafe because abortion restrictions, restrictions are unsafe. Restrictions are unsafe. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and like medically, it should all happen in the same place. There's no yeah. reason you should be flying. We lived in New York City. We lived in New York City. We lived a mile from some of the best hospitals in the country. Like, it's ridiculous. With so. the best insurance possible. The other thing I want to mention is that at the time I worked for an investment bank um, and we had the best insurance in it possible. Like no one has better insurance than I had at the time. And still it didn't matter. These privileges that we think will save us in these moments, they don't. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's very far out of network to get on a plane and fly across the country. So, you know, they did pay for the labor and delivery. We're really fortunate for that. When it was all said and done, they did reimburse us for a third of the shot, which is the most I've ever heard anyone getting. Um, And it took six months and multiple. Lots of tears, lots of calls. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of letters. Did you, when you were like looking at these, you know, like the financial cost, did you consider just um, continuing with the pregnancy? Did you look into palliative care and like what those options would be like? Or how did, how did you feel about those other possibilities? That's a good question. Um, well, two things. One, um, 
So I was an, a year out from brain surgery and because my brain surgeon could not sign off on me pushing. So going into spontaneous labor was actually a real concern for me. So we were looking at a C-section. My doctor did not want to put me through a C-section for a non-viable pregnancy. Um, so they really like, again, looking at everything at this point, like once we knew the pregnancy was not viable, all of a sudden the concern really shifted to my health. Um, and they didn't want me to have to go through a C-section. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two, um, due to our particular case, I mean, every case is different. We asked what would happen if we carried the pregnancy to term. Our doctor explained that our baby, if we gave birth to a baby, would choke for a few minutes before dying. Mm -hmm. um, that sounded certainly like suffering to us. Um, and we didn't want to do that. Um, you know, it's interesting, like at the time, you know, my, I guess my feelings on pain and um, fetal pain, infant pain have really evolved over the years. Um, as I've met more and more patients with more and more stories, I think people that decide to carry to term, do I think that they are choosing like a particular path of pain for their babies? I, I don't. Um, I think it's possible. These are seeming contradictions, but I think it's, I think people minimize pain as they understand it different ways. Um, mm -hmm. that was what sounded like minimizing pain to us at the time to another patient. Um, they think it's caring to term and, and, you know, allowing the baby to go through whatever process, um, happens before they pass. And I think that's also equally valid. So, you know, um, I think we're all kind of feeling around in the dark when it comes to, um, you know, the feelings that we project onto a fetus or a baby. And I think all we could do is make decisions based on what we understood of suffering and pain. And at the time, to us, the most compassionate decision we could have made was terminating that pregnancy in utero. Um, but again, that is not to make any sort of a value judgment on any other choice that another person would make. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Were you were you both on the same page with all of this? We were. Um, yeah. Were, were there any points at the, in the pregnancy where you felt like you weren't on the same page or you were seeing things differently or you just kind of in sync the whole time? I think we were pretty in sync. But. Yeah, I think um, Garen didn't miss one appointment. Um, so we were really just in it there together. I didn't know any information he didn't know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really felt like we were both really on the same page. And that again is a privilege that I wouldn't have thought of it that way until I started to meet more patients who just weren't as fortunate to have like a supportive plugged in partner. We'll be back with patient stories in just a minute. Pregnancy can be both an exciting and extremely stressful time for parents. Many parents receive genetic counseling as part of their prenatal care, regardless of any specific indication. But finding time or a genetic counselor near you can be challenging. At Gray Genetics, setting up an appointment with a certified genetic counselor is easy. Simply go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. Select your state and schedule an appointment with a genetic counselor that fits your schedule. 
Then, over the phone or secure video conferencing, a certified genetic counselor will review your family history, possible genetic diagnoses, birth defects, or history of pregnancy loss. They will also be able to help you navigate current genetic testing options and review any results of testing that you may have already had done. To learn more about our prenatal genetic counseling and more services, go to graygenetics.com. That's G-R-E-Y genetics.com. So what was your experience like with the termination, with actually getting the digoxin injection? So on a practical level, it's very much like an amnio, um, except it's just much more sad. <laughs> it was really, it was really emotionally very hard. Um, you know, I was in a little room with with Dr. Hearn and some nurses. There happened to have been a new nurse on his staff who had come from Brooklyn, so I felt like I had a little piece of home in the room, in the procedure room with me. She held my hand the whole time and just gave me tissues as I just cried through the whole thing. Um, it was the only point where Garen couldn't be with me. That's just a practical thing. I think in his office, they're small rooms and I think they just only have so much space. I know people who have gone to other later providers are able to have a partner or someone in there with them. I do think um, the staff was so incredibly supportive that I didn't feel alone. It was just weird to not have Garen there. Um, but, you know, it was really hard. I mean, they were just so incredibly kind to me the whole time. Um, they just kept saying, I'm so sorry. Um, and they gave me the shot and then they said, we're going to take you to a recovery room. And again, I mean, if it, it really was just very much like an amnio, I, that's the best way I can think of to describe it. Um, whenever you get a shot in the belly, which pregnant people do for various testing, it's pretty much the same, um, sensation. And then they took me to a recovery room and then they just kept waiting. You know, they kept kept, well, we had been warned. They said, you know, you need to set aside, you know, some hours. Um, it takes, you know, different times for different people for, you know, the shot to induce fetal demise. We'll just keep checking you. In my case, it was pretty quick from what I remember, actually. Um, yeah, Garen, like do you remember that? I think it was like an hour. It was moment. maybe an hour um, that we sat in that room and just tried to kind of talk. And that's when we talked to Dr. Hearn. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think we were probably still in a little bit of shock and I was really worried about labor and delivery. So I think I was just probably mentally already thinking about the next day. So we, after that appointment, we ended up getting a hotel room by the airport just so we could like take a nap and rest before our flight we got on a flight that night and then um flew back to new york that night um and then tried to distract ourselves the next day before uh going into sinai around eight or nine o'clock and i okay. just want to point out that like you know at this point we're flying to colorado and back and erica is very visibly pregnant um and this was a, I think a few days before or after Mother's Day or something like that, and and it's, it just struck me how much liberty people take with pregnant people, 
and and sort of commenting on the pregnancy, asking if it was our first, asking if we had a name, that kind of stuff. Happy and, first Mother's Day all through been, the airport. And that had been mm-hmm. happening a lot, but the fact that it happened because we were forced to be in this public situation at this point, um, you know, that part of it also felt really cruel to me. Um, yeah. Having to go through it, they, they, you know, we had to fly and again, Erica's very pregnant and, and they, they actually um, advise you to, if, you know, if TSA or the airline is concerned about you flying at that point in your pregnancy, you, you're supposed to say that you're pregnant with twins and that's why you're so large um, so that you don't have to sort of go into it. Um, So I just, I just, I just wanted to note that because I think that we, you know, that was very much part of the experience, I think for us. I also think it's tied to why people think they have a say in someone else's life, right? Like for what, you know, in our culture, because pregnancy is so public um, and, you know, we're judgmental animals. There's, there's something about our allowance of pregnant people to be public domain um, that makes people, I think, get the impression that they have some kind of a say over us. Right. Um, Yeah. It's just that like very core public nature of it. I think it's, yeah, it's just what it is. Yeah. Has it, has that changed at all? Like how you, um, I don't know if you'd ever, you know, like comment on someone's pregnancy like before, but I mean, I'm sure it changes how you, how you think about the possibilities when you see someone. Oh yeah. If I ever did, I apologize. (laughs) I mean, it's really changed everything. I mean, I just would never dare comment on certainly a stranger, Never mind someone I, you know, even friends and family, I'm so much more sensitive, but a stranger, I mean, I would not dare. (laughs) Never. And I think a lot of it comes comes down to like not knowing how someone might feel about their pregnancy, right? And 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 understanding that that can change at different points throughout their pregnancy. So, mm-hmm. you know, even even someone who's having a perfectly healthy, um, wanted and desired pregnancy, if if you know if they're getting kicked in the bladder at that moment, they may not be very happy. <laughs> I think it's okay to just like you know. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me about what your experience was like when you went to Mount Sinai to actually deliver. I read I read your interview with Gia Tolentino that you gave just, I think, about two weeks after, and I'll include a link in the show notes. But like reading that, I was like, man, a C-section seems like it would have been a lot easier. <laughs> well, I and I, I could see that being, I mean, well, first off, they didn't, you know, the, the epidurals didn't work. And that was no one's fault. Um, The doctor who came in, who, you know, to care for me first said, you know, we, because you are not having a live birth, um, we can give you drugs that we can't give other pregnant people. Um, We're going to give you an epidural. We're going to give you some other stuff. You're not going to feel a thing. That's what he said. And then, you know, it didn't work. Um, And it was, pretty horrid. Um, I will say that in that the the recovery was probably, well, I know it was easier than people who go through um, a C-section. And in ret- in retrospect, I'm not, I'm, I don't regret any course of my care. I mean, I, no one could have predicted that the epidurals wouldn't work. And when it was all said and done, I was, I was relieved that I wasn't, you know, recovering from a C-section. 
um, mm-hmm. because I was able to heal much more quickly than I would have if I was nursing a, a surgical scars. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that was uh, that. Um, but again, I couldn't push. So what that meant was basically, you know, the doctor had to sort of time the contractions and essentially pull the baby out of me without pushing because they were worried about my head. Right. So if if anyone has had a baby and now I've had a healthy baby since, um, you know, that, you know, it's like impossible to not push in a healthy labor and delivery situation because, you know, I, what I know now is that, you know, I personally, I just think having my, having my baby was so much different because Pepper and I labored her together. That's, that's our baby. You know, she was, she, she was pushing as much as I was. So we were kind of working together to to get her born. Um, And in this case, when you're delivering a stillbirth, it's not like that. You know, it's really between your body and that doctor. Um, And that poor doctor worked really, really hard, um, during that labor and delivery, uh, you know, I will just be forever grateful to her. She just really did the work. I mean, we, for my follow-up appointment, we brought her like a giant bottle of bourbon. Um, (laughs) She really just, you know, it was, it was really hard work for everyone in the room and I felt everything and it was really horrid and it yeah, it felt like we had gone to war together at that point. Yeah, the three of us, yeah. Garen and I, yeah, and this doctor. It was a long, dark night for sure. Um, for all, yeah. Of and then um, after, so then they tried to get the placenta out, but it just wouldn't. It wouldn't dislodge. So then, after the delivery, I ended up going in for a DNC anyway um, to remove the placenta, which was actually like a real relief. I was so happy to be put to sleep after that. It was just like, yeah, just give me all of the drugs and just like knock me out at this point. Um, and it also, I think helped with recovery to be able to get that DNC. Um, I think that made recovery a little bit easier too. Yeah. Um, and I think you requested a fetal autopsy. Is that right? And did was any additional genetic testing done? Yeah. So in this is sort of a fast forward, but um, sometime later, um, we we were we found out Erica was pregnant again, and there was some shenanigans with that. But ultimately, it was a healthy pregnancy. Um, and when we were um, when we were going through that pregnancy, we fortunately found a doctor who had a lot of competency with genetics and worked with a very good genetic counselor that they had a good relationship. And so the three or the, I don't know, four of us uh, worked closely to try to figure out maybe what had happened before in, in this other pregnancy so that we could make sure it wasn't going to happen again, or that mm-hmm. if it did, we could see the signs of it sooner. Um, right. And so they ordered testing on, um, on that fetus, which had been preserved uh, from the prior pregnancy. Um, and, and a lot of that was about, you know, looking, looking into the detail of, of the description, looking at photos and stuff, trying to sort of, in a way, like figure out what had happened, 
make some guesses on what it could be, and then order more specific genetic testing on the material to try to hone in on what it was. Um, and something that was interesting was that, you know, we got pregnant again very soon after um, the abortion, which again, wouldn't, I mean, I, I, yeah, maybe too soon. Who knows? Pepper's here and we love her. So everything you know, <laughs> came out the way it was supposed to. But um, in that short amount of time, you know, between the, the tests that we got for that pregnancy and my healthy pregnancy, the geneticist said that they could test for like 200 more things that they couldn't have less than a year ago. That was like how quickly that, you know, the, that genetics was evolving. And we, we thought that that was really fascinating that there was just in that short period of time, like so much more stuff had happened. Um, I, we just thought that was really interesting. And in the end, you know, they didn't, we still, it's still a great diagnosis. We still can't, point to anything specific. Um, they think it was a random gene mutation that wasn't tied to a condition in either one of us. They don't think that it had a chance of happening again, and certainly not in that pregnancy. They didn't see any indications that, you know, that the healthy pregnancy was affected in any way like the last one. Um, so, yeah, it was so ultimately we, a pretty uneventful pregnancy otherwise. This yeah, time. every time we went, they'd be like, everything looks perfect. And we're like, wait, what? Like, we didn't even... <laughs> we're not going to see you in two weeks? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like our appointments, our scans would take like five minutes, whereas our scans would always take an hour because, you know, it was just so hard to get the movements, they the measurements they needed with no movement. And, yeah. you know, Pepper was just a very active pregnancy. You know, that whole... It was just completely different in every way. Um, but what it means is that we had to learn to live with no definitive answer. And that's really hard. Like, I think if we could call it something, I think it would satisfy some something in us. But the reality is, is that's just not always the case. Like you just, yeah. there's some things you can't test for yet or ever. Um, since then, I mean, I'm, I'm in a support network with, 1300 people in it who all experienced um, bad diagnoses or, or maternal health indications. And only one person in that group have I met who had indications like ours. Um, it's just, you know, it, it could just be so incredibly rare that it just is going to take more people to experience it before they can identify a marker, I guess. Um, you probably have more insight into that than we than we do. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting because, you know, this is a podcast where, you know, I interview people related to their experience with genetic conditions, but, you know, your case is just like the most common in that most of the time when there's something like really awful, you know, we do testing and we can rule out, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of possibilities, but then more often than not, we're left saying we're just not sure. Um, and that, and that happens also, you know, in other fields of genetics, like in cancer, you know, just right. because we don't find a mutation that explains a pattern doesn't mean that it's not genetic, but, um, I think it, it can be so, so frustrating, you know, yeah, not to have yeah. that answer. Right. Yeah. So if about two weeks after your abortion and your delivery at Mount Sinai, you reached out to Gia Tolentino, who was a writer at Jezebel at the time, 
um, and had previously interviewed one of the few physicians providing abortions throughout the um, throughout pregnancy, later abortions. Um, what led you to reach out to her? And I'm curious, what kind of responses did did you get um, from that interview? So it was interesting in the aftermath when Garen and I were just spending a lot of time at home. Like those were dark days where we were still just trying to like sort through what had happened. We were like, do people know about this? Like, do people know that like there's a law in New York that makes people travel for abortions? And like, you know, we were like, does like, do the people who read Jezebel know this? <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like, like, we just had this desire to like warn people. Like we were like, they should know this. Like we wish we had known this. Um, and so Garen actually had the idea. He's like, you should reach out to them and be like, hey, just so you all know, like, this is a thing that can happen to people like in New York. <laughs> you know. Um, and so I thought, OK, and I, you know, we were avid readers of the blog and of, you know, Gawker in general. And I was very familiar with Gia's interviews and I thought, you know, she would be a good person to reach out to and. I just cold emailed her and said, Hey, you know, I went to Colorado for an abortion a couple weeks ago. Um, we were really surprised that this was a thing. Um, we, we think somebody should write about this. Like if you would like to write about this, you know, um, we have some information and it'd be great if you could just write this and like warn everybody at, at Jezebel. And mm -hmm. she wrote me back right away. And she said, she was like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. <laughs> um, this is wild, but also what do you think of it being an interview? Um, because you know, I just think we could learn a lot just hearing about like kind of what happened in your own words. And I, and I said, sure. Um, you know, and she said, you could be anonymous. You could not be anonymous. It's up to you. We could decide that after the interview. Um, and so we just, you know, set up a time to talk, uh, pretty soon after that. And she and I talked for, you know, a couple hours on the phone. And then she set up a Google Doc um, after it had been transcripted. And we kind of did some edits together. You know, she was really generous. She, she was like, anything you want to change or anything that you want to clarify, please do. And then, which I did. And then um, we decided for it to be anonymous at the time because, honestly, I didn't feel like I had the mental fortitude at the time to deal with like being attacked on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. I was just like, I don't have it in me, like maybe later, but like right now I just like, I, I was just so expecting a really not bad response, but I just thought a critical response um, that I think I was just scared, honestly. And also like, a lot of people in our personal lives didn't know what we had gone through. Um, our very closest friends did and our moms did, but really that's it. Um, our wider family didn't know. And so that's kind of how um, we decided to be anonymous uh, with it. And in a way, and in retrospect, I don't regret that because I think I was much more honest than I would have been if I thought that my name would be on it. Um, yeah. There's some things in retrospect, maybe I would have cut out of there um, <laughs> if I would have known that people would eventually know it was me. Uh, but that's also probably, I think people responded to the honesty of it. Um, so, you know, it's, that's fine. 
Um, and then through that, um, the response was pretty, pretty surprising to us. Um, it got cross posted on all of the Gawker blogs. So I think it got a wider viewership than just, you know, the normal Jezebel readers. Um, it got reposted by a lot of different, um, publications after that first initial run, a million people read it. Um, and you know, we got a lot of emails from people that Gia would forward. She said, Hey, I'm getting a lot of people wanting to get in touch with you. Is it okay if I forward them? And I said, sure. And it was just a lot of people who had experienced loss or, you know, had ended pregnancies like this, or, you know, who just wanted to reach out and say, I went through this too. And we just started to read all these emails. Um, and then uh, one email we got was from a lawyer at the NYCLU, uh, the New York Civil Liberties Union, who her name is Catherine Bodie, who has now become like a very close friend. And she reached out through Gia and said, hey, I'm a lawyer. I'm working on this bill in New York to literally prevent like exactly what you went through. Um, we have been looking for patients willing to talk about this. Uh, we're putting out a report and if you would be willing to talk to me and contribute to the report, you know, we would love to, to talk to you. And so we reached out um, to Catherine and that kind of started the next three years of our lives um, up to today. Um, I will say too that, so that was in May, The or so our abortion was in mid-May, that Jezebel article came out in the first week of June. That October was the third presidential debate um, when, you know, later abortion came up in that debate. Um, you know, the now president, a very um, now notoriously um, said some pretty heinous things about later abortion. Um, as a result of that, the interview was rerun and another million people read it. Um, it is wild. So now it's up to like over, I think it's like 2.6 million views. And what's really, uh, wild too, is that it's a really long interview. I mean, it defies like internet logic and, uh, Jezebel says that people read it. They read the whole thing. Um, and they know that from their like back end, you know, internet, um, analytics, uh, that people yeah. actually read the whole thing. So this like rambling long article about abortion, people actually read it and they shared it a lot. And I guess um, that alone made it worth it that when that moment happened in October um, in the presidential debate, um, there was something that people could share as a counter to that, um, I think was important. And that was also a really good lesson to us. So um yeah, so we hooked up with the NYCLU. We started to spend a lot of time in Albany telling the story that we just told you in some form over and over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, that kind of started us down the rabbit hole of, of abortion restrictions. And... Um, and under, understanding the harm that they do and understanding how, how our experience fit into sort of a wider a wider conversation that was happening or not happening in some cases in the United States about abortion. And just, 
I, I, th- I think one of the things that, that sort of we, it, it took us a while to figure out is that, you know, our, our, our situation, you know, when we told our story, a lot of times um, we really focused on the diagnosis and, and sort of the hardship and the tragedy of our, of our circumstance. Um, but, you know, that isn't ultimately New York State's fault. So like in our case, we were affected by a restriction um, that made us had to travel in this case. And, and that was terrible. Um, but that wasn't, you know, the diagnosis wasn't something that New York State did. Um, and I think we started to, to sort of shift how we talked about it and thought about it and realized that, like, you know, we're not we're not we're not asking New York not to, to sort of eradicate bad diagnoses. I mean, if they could do that, that'd be great. But but we're asking them to sort of allow people to get health care when they need it without having to leave the state. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a really fundamental shift. I mean, yeah. we went from telling an abortion story to an abortion restriction story. Um, and I think that's a really fundamental difference. Um, yeah, that kind of shifted everything for us because, you know, the reality is, is people experience the restrictions for potentially different reasons, but the restriction is universal. Um, and by focusing on the restriction and, you know, explaining to people or, or allowing them to see that they're harmful and discriminatory, you know, that we can, we can come together on that as patients, all patients, regardless of, of what led you to, to seeking your termination. And, and that kind of brings me to something I I really want to share is that part of our rabbit hole, as I call it, you know, and I, I want to say, Garen and I never went back to our regular jobs after this. I mean, this really changed our lives, this experience. Mm -hmm. And I think one gift we gave each other was, we're just going to let it do that. Like, We're not going to pretend everything's fine. We're not going to go back to how life was before because that's impossible. Like life is just completely different now. And we're just going to, to allow it to change us in the ways that it's going to change us. Um, And I think that was like a very important part of how we were able to heal after this. We weren't like forcing ourselves to be quote unquote, some version of normal. We were like, you know what? We're different now. We're maybe a little whacked and like, that's life. and We're just going to go with it. Um, So we just got comfy in the rabbit hole and we're, you know, we're still there because we're also endlessly fascinated um, by the subject. But, you know, we reached out to researchers. We, Garen called the president of ACOG you know, to ask, you know, to, to try to figure out what was going on with insurance and coding and, and, you know, all of these, these pieces that we started to, to put together. Um, and what we know now, we have a much broader understanding of abortions later in pregnancy now, certainly than we had three years ago when we were getting one ourselves. Um, Mm -hmm. what we know now, I mean, I think unfortunately later abortion has been conflated with, abortions that are sought due to bad pregnancy diagnoses. And that's, that's to our detriment. Um, most people who terminate for a bad diagnosis are still doing that earlier on. I mean, plenty can be caught by a blood test. It's still, you know, rare for people to be, to get the, this care later in pregnancy. Um, in reality, you know, people get later care or they seek later care. Generally they follow, one of two paths. And we have this framework, um, thanks to a researcher named Katrina Kimport um, out of uh, UCSF. 
Um, they do some really amazing research around abortion out there. And what she found from speaking to patients who terminated after 24 weeks is that the two paths are one, finding out new information that you couldn't possibly have known before. So that is like us, this diagnosis that we got later. Um, it could be new information like, you know, you're suddenly homeless or a, you know, something sudden happens in your life that changes the course of that pregnancy for you. Um, the most common new information that you're pregnant. I think people would be very shocked to find out how, how many people find out they're pregnant after the first trimester. It's actually much more common than people think, particularly if you're young or if you have a complicated medical history. Um, the other path is you experienced barriers to getting the care as early as you would have liked. So that is disagreements with your partners, uh, with your partner. You couldn't, um, you didn't have the money. So as you're scraping the money together for that $500 abortion, you've crossed over a line that makes it $1,000. Now you're trying to scrape together $1,000. You've crossed a line that makes it $1,500. Before you know it, you're looking at a $10,000 procedure that requires travel. Um, and then many patients like us will experience a combination of the two. So you find out new information you couldn't possibly have known before, and then you experience, you experience barriers to getting the care as early as you would like. Um, and that's very human, right? When you hear that, when you hear that explanation, you think, wow, yeah, that is very consistent with what I know about the way humans experience life and live. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, that framework is so refreshing because it, um, you know, it just speaks to the reality and uh, the lived experiences um, that people are dealing with in this country. And I think without it, I think when people want to talk about later abortion, um, you know, they will lean on tragic, you know, these quote unquote tragic cases like ours, um, when in fact we, you know, we are not fully representative of the people who require later care. So I guess I want to go back a little bit to what you said earlier about people feeling really uncomfortable about this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think people have really complex feelings about where life begins. And I think that of course they do, because we're talking about the most fundamental nature of, of what it means to be human. And th this is not supposed to be an easy um, conversation. So I think we want to allow people their complexity and even their discomfort, if that's something that they're working through. What we're asking ultimately is for people to hold two seemingly conflicting truths, which is that they might have some discomfort about abortions later in pregnancy and we want them to see that abortion restrictions are discriminatory and harmful. Can you hold mm -hmm. both views? Is it possible that the discomfort you feel that the best tool to deal with it is not an abortion restriction or it's not at the ballot box when you, you know, make a vote for an anti-abortion politician? Um, because ultimately we're asking people to assign a value to their discomfort. How, how valuable is that discomfort? For you, is it worth, you know, taking healthcare away from people you don't know, you've never met, whose lives you couldn't possibly know? Um, can is it? Do you have other tools to work through your discomfort? And we think we think they do. Um, and this is this is not an easy conversation because it's not an easy topic. 
Um, but it's one we have to have because what we see so clearly now is that it's this is critical care um, that abortion restrictions disproportionately affect the already most discriminated against people in our communities. So in fact, the people who are most likely to be pushed later in pregnancy are those who just can't afford their care earlier. And are we okay discriminating against those people? I'm not. It, in my mind, that's its own tragedy. Um, and that's the the wider conversation that we're trying to inspire in people. Yeah. I find it interesting that even, you know, when you were initially, you know, given the poor diagnosis and poor prognosis, then told that you would need to go to Colorado for an abortion, trying to figure everything out in terms of money, you were both already thinking, how do other people deal with this? <laughs> I don't know yeah. how common that would be, you know, for, for people, you know, in that kind of tragedy to already be thinking about, about other people in similar or dissimilar situations, but dealing with the same restrictions. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think everything that we've done since or to try to help um, help frame this conversation all comes back to those initial conversations we had um, and that we're still having. It's just so deeply unfair um, that we've allowed these restrictions to stand as a kind of compromise Um which we know now that they're not a compromise. They're actually like active discrimination that we've just been okay with, you know, for 40 plus years. And I think for instance, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe even us included, if you had asked us if New York's law seemed reasonable, we probably would have said, yeah, but it was really reasonable. Yeah. Who can't get an abortion by a certain time? Because, you know, we were ignorant. We just, we didn't know. Um, we didn't know why at the time and we hadn't thought much about it. And now, I mean, given just the public nature of our work, it's amazing. I mean, everywhere we go now, people tell us, you know, in hushed tones about their abortion later in pregnancy. And, yeah. you know, the reason we don't lean on the rarity is that the data collection is so imperfect. Uh, you know, with this, there are plenty of hospitals providing later care, but they will get categorized different ways. Um, my abortion in New York was categorized as a stillbirth, for instance. So I wouldn't even be counted in New York numbers. So it's really hard to get a totally accurate sense of how many people are needing this care. Um, so we don't, in our work, lean on the rarity because we just simply don't know how rare it is. Um, we also know that it may become less rare as more restrictions are passed. That just pushes people later into their pregnancies. And yeah. I just, I just want to say, I, th I think, I think it's important to note that, you know, we've we've talked about like how how this could affect other people. And I, I think one thing that a lot of times when we're talking about this, we take for granted is that, you know, we assume that people have access to some of the healthcare that we talked about having. I mean, we we had a CVS, we had a you know, um, carrier screening. We ha we had all these things. We had access to healthcare that that I think a lot of people just don't have. Um, and and so, what you know about your pregnancy, maybe before this moment, you know, people don't experience this stuff equally. And and it's it's an important conversation that we need to have about prenatal care and 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 sort of maternal mortality and and things like that. Um, 
and, and maybe that's where our, our focus and our conversation should should be as a society instead of, you know, getting into the these very personal decisions that people are making once they do have information. Right. Yeah, it can be so hard um, just to get into prenatal care, you know, like yeah. once like one one barrier is like learning you're pregnant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which may, yeah, or may, yeah. not, may or may not be obvious, but then yeah. I know I worked um, my first job out of school was in a at a public hospital, OBGYN clinic. And, you know, before I would get to work, I'd hear from staff like there were there were people lining up outside the locked door to get in for their first appointment like it started kind of with an orientation and like not everybody got in like the that time that they came and they would need to come back like the next week on the next like intake day just because there wasn't enough capacity to take care of all the people and these are people like getting up early lining up for prenatal care and just not getting in and you can imagine so they get pushed a week right and so the, the clock is ticking they come they're ready to try back the next week and oops one of their kids is sick now what do they do now what do they do now they're stuck home. Now it's another week. It's just, you know, honestly, like knowing what I know now, I am amazed that so many people get their abortions early. I'm just like, how, like knowing <laughs> everything in our way, I'm just like, it is a miraculous feat that like, you know, 90% of abortion patients are able to get their care in like the first nine weeks. Like that is just mind blowing now that I know everything in their way for making that happen. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the answer is certainly not to desert the people who aren't as able or as lucky for reasons totally outside of their control. Right. So I know that both of you were really active in, re in pushing for the Reproductive Health Act in New York State, which I believe passed in January. Yes. Maybe January not in 22nd. Okay. And then not, so tell me like, what, what does that involve? And then I think it's not maybe, you know, with a lot of bills, it's not your perfect or ideal form of the bill, but what what do what does the passage of that act mean, and like what do you feel is still still left to accomplish? Right. So so prior to the Reproductive Health Act, um, the law in New York uh, would allow abortions up through 24 weeks of pregnancy for any reason, and only after that in cases where there was an immediate threat to the life of the patient. Also, abortion was regulated in the criminal code. Yeah. And so, so this was a carve out in the criminal code. In other words, you know, these were exceptions to the crime of abortion before 24 weeks and only after that in the case of a threat to the to the life. Now, that that is not in compliance with Roe v. Wade. So the New York New York law was passed in 1970 and Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, which said that states um, could not, you know, restrict or regulate access to abortion prior to 24 weeks. And after that, there had to be exceptions for life as we had in New York, but that there also had to be exceptions for cases of fetal non-viability and cases where there was a threat to the health of the pregnant person. Um, and so those, those exceptions were, were, were missing. missing. And, and therefore, the, our law was not in compliance with Roe v. Wade and effectively unconstitutional. Um, mm. So again, you know, in our case, um, where there was a case of fetal non-viability, but also a threat to Erica's health, um, according to Roe v. Wade, we should have been able to get care in New York State or in any state. Um, but because of this pre-existing law, um, while, while federal law supersedes state law, what it did was it 
because it's in the criminal code as well, you know, hospital lawyers at hospitals crack open the, the law books and they see that like, it is a crime in New York state to provide this care, even though there's a federal ruling that arguably supersedes that they're like, we're not going to do this. Um, so it had a chilling effect and it, and it meant that, that, you know, nobody was offering this care in the state. Um, and, and patients like us were being referred out uh, and, you know, basically left to sort of fend for themselves. So the Reproductive Health Act decriminalized abortion in New York State, taking it out of the, the penal code and putting it into the New York health law. Um, it, it added those critical exceptions uh, later in pregnancy to bring it in compliance um, with Roe v. Wade, which again is a baseline, right? It's, it's, a, it's a ruling from 1973. Um, it's, it's not by far not really a progressive way to think about abortion. Um, but it, but it brought us in line with that. Um, and it also clarified that uh, providers who are not physicians uh, can provide abortion care, which is really critical early in pregnancy, um, where, you know, a lot of abortion care is um, uh, medication abortion or early aspiration care. And, uh, you know, advanced practice clinicians uh, like PAs and, and um, certified nurse midwives and stuff like that um, can provide that care and fill in critical coverage gaps, especially in rural parts of the state. So that was really important as well. You know, for us, as we sort of learned about this and learned about all of the other people who might need this care, um, there's still exceptions uh, written into New York's law. And it means that if you don't fall into these categories of a threat to the health or life or fetal viability, um, you know, that you can be denied care in the state. So we think the Reproductive Health Act was a great step. Um, you know, it effectively brought us from 1970 to 1973, uh, but, but not, really, not really to 2019. Um, and so I think there's still a lot more work to do there uh, broadly, um, and, and, and we're committed to continuing to work on that. The RHA for us, I think, was was a very good step. We got involved um, after Erica had published or had um, done the interview with Jezebel. Um, uh, Catherine Bodie, a lawyer from the New York Civil Liberties Union, got in touch looking for a patient to help sort of um, share share their story and and sort of help make the case for the bill. Um, and so we we worked on it a lot. Um, as a result, first just sharing our story and then, and then sort of creating RHA vote, a grassroots, sort of the grassroots home for the bill and helping people understand why, why the bill was important, how patients were actually being affected by it, mm -hmm. by the, by the state's current law, et cetera. You've really touched on this before, but I think for so many people, it's, you know, it's possible to see an argument for later abortion in a case like yours, where someone can think, like, feel really sympathetic toward it, um, or if the, the patient's life is in danger. But when it's a healthy fetus, it's harder for people, you know, going back to just feeling uncomfortable. Um, what do you say to those people who say, like, you know, RHA seems like a great step, but that's probably where we should stop? Yes, um, I, I think critically uh, over the over the course of our time working on it, we we came to understand more about um, all of the other patients that need access to later abortion care, and so by by creating these exceptions that are you know life, health, 
and fetal non-viability, there's a lot of people that are actually left out of that. Uh, so people that are pushed later because they, they don't find out that they're pregnant until much later, which is more common than you think. Um, people who have to overcome other sorts of barriers, financial barriers, or, or have difficulty accessing care for one reason or another. Um, those people are not covered under the Reproductive Health Act. Um, but also cases where there might be a gray diagnosis on, on their pregnancy. Um, so, you know, fortunately the, the law leaves, puts a lot of the onus on the physician or the, sorry, the provider, um, to make the determination on whether or not they meet sort of that standard. Um, but I think in some cases where it's like, you know, is this, is this a viable pregnancy or not? That, that can be hard for, for a provider to call um, with with good information, and so it starts to come down to provider to provider um, to make that determination. And I think if we if we sort of took that away and just said, you know, you you don't you don't need to feel like you can say with absolute one hundred percent certainty that this is a non viable pregnancy, but in your best judgment, is it um, with the information that you have? And I I, th I think you know a lot of people assume that we know more than we really do about things that are going on with a pregnancy. And I, I just think sometimes we don't really know as much as we'd like. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I, I truly believe that the biggest difference between me and any other patient uh, who seeks care later in pregnancy is that you've heard my story. Um, you've heard, you know, how the, the hoops we went through to access the care um, I actually think meeting us and understanding our circumstances, I would argue, is just as important as the specific quote unquote reason that led us to needing the care. I think it's very hard for Americans for whatever reason, um, perhaps it's baked into our DNA, um, to not be able to extend compassion and empathy to people that they can't meet, that they can't see. And in this particular case, people that have been really villainized. Um, you know, this sort of wild myth um, that people are just kind of willy nilly up and getting abortions at 39 weeks for quote unquote, no reason um, is a really harmful myth that plays into our deeply held um, biases and um, flawed mental templates that we all have in our minds about women and pregnant people and people who need abortion care and people who, who are just pregnant period. Um, and I think that it's, it is hard to extend compassion to people, not only that you haven't met, but that have been really specifically villainized to you. Um, you know, if, if a person has been painted as a villain, I think your instinct is to rush in and, um, restrict or, you know, to get the law in there to, um, you know, to do some some legal regulations. Um, and what we know from hearing stories from patients themselves, from the providers who care from them for them, is that these are people that are making really careful personal decisions based on a range of their, you know, it, it's their own life experience, it's their particular circumstances, it's the children that they likely already have that they're trying to figure out how they provide for. So these are really often parenting decisions that people are making. And um, I think that it's a difference between, look, if, if people want to personally decide that they are uncomfortable with 
later abortion. Perhaps that's something they think that they would never do in their case or that they would not support or uh, not encourage, you know, their loved ones to do. You know, I respect that. I I don't think we're in the business of, of trying to make people comfortable with someone else's personal healthcare decision. Um, what we're asking is that people remove themselves from someone else's decision-making process. And I think, you know, we're allowing a lot of value to people's discomfort, often based in ignorance. Um, and it really has a real-time effect on other people's lives, people they don't know, whose lives, life circumstances they could never know, people they will never meet. Um, and so I think we have to kind of decouple judgment, which this is America. We're all allowed to judge. That's, you know, <laughs> I suppose that's our, our, you know, first, first right is we are able to judge anybody for anything. Um, but at the same time, we want people to recognize that abortion restrictions are incredibly harmful and they're discriminatory because some people can get around them and some people can't. So, I, I guess I'm I'm I don't want to use the time to to try to make people comfortable about something that they just so deeply misunderstand. Um, we can continue to work to educate. Um, we can continue to try to diversify the patients that people hear from, and you know that's really the focus of our work now. Um, but beyond that, we're asking people to remove themselves from someone else's you know healthcare decision making process. Right, right. People don't have to be comfortable with it. They just have to stay out of someone else's <laughs> rights to, to healthcare. That's right. You're, the, the discomfort, the, the right tool to deal with your discomfort is not a legal regulation or we would argue even a vote at a ballot box. Um, we're hoping people can um, work through their discomfort with real education and um, real stories of real people. Right. And what, so one other um, objection that I think people come up with um, is wondering why adoption isn't more often an option for people. I don't know if you- Yeah, thanks for yeah. bringing that up. Thanks for yeah. bringing that up. This is, this is a hard, um, I think, concept for people to grasp, but the decision whether or not to bring a pregnancy to term, to, to create a person, is separate from the decision about whether or not to parent them. So those are two separate decisions, right? And people overwhelmingly- when they decide to bring a pregnancy to term, overwhelmingly want to parent their own children. There's a reason why people, you know, the adoption rate is something like 2%. And why is that? Because people want to parent the children that they have deeply. And we should be committed in keeping those families together and doing everything we can um, to, to keep families together when they've made the decision to, to have children and parent them. Um, but what happens is the, you know, we kind of conflate these two decisions. Um, you know, what patients have told providers, for instance, there's a provider in um, New Mexico who speaks about this so well. She asked patients, later patients, why, you know, have you considered adoption? You know, she, um, because she was curious as well. And what she heard is that people don't want to bring a child into this world and then give them up. Um, because they worry about what will happen to that child. They worry about that child having a hard life. Oftentimes, these are people who went through the system themselves. So they've been a foster kid. They've, they've you know, kicked around the system in various ways. And, like, they don't want to bring a child into the world to put them into that system. And, you know, we have to respect that people are the experts in their own lives. Um, they have just deep knowledge, um, 
you know, of the system sometimes that they came through and that, you know, they're, they're making the best decisions they can with a lot of information that I don't think we always grant people. And also adoption is, is an option. Like if, if people do want to continue a pregnancy to term and then, and then give a child up for adoption, they're certainly welcome to do that. And if, if they want to do that, we should support them. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot that can be said for that. But I think pitting adoption, what, what often happens is that people pit adoption against abortion. Going through this experience, you know, it seems like when you started out, you were like quite unfamiliar with um, abortion restrictions and the procedure. um, And now you're very well informed. Is there anything looking back that, you know, you believed for a long time about abortion and found out was just not true? So, um, yes. I mean, I look back at myself before 2016, before I had a later abortion, and I was just so ignorant. I mean, it didn't even occur to me to learn these weren't, you know, I wasn't in um, reproductive health rights justice circles. Um, I certainly cared. I considered myself generally pro-choice. I would have probably said that I supported, you know, Roe v. Wade, of course. Um, But I also probably would have been open to to restrictions as a kind of compromise. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if somebody would have said, how about we just restrict it 24 weeks? I probably would have said, yeah, that seems like a logical compromise because who can't get it together in, you know, six months? That's, that's probably what I would have said mm-hmm. because I was just ignorant. Like I just didn't understand. Um, because, you know, I, for me, I, I hadn't been pregnant before. Um, I, my friends hadn't really started to be pregnant yet. This huge, um, complication with pregnancy hadn't been introduced into my life yet. I mean, among my friends, I, you know, I, we've worked through infertility and miscarriage and abortion. And, you know, I look at all my friends and their families and I just see the hoops that people jumped through and the incredible expense and time and heartbreak and stress. And, you know, now I know that building a family is really hard Um, And I just had no respect or knowledge of that at all, I think, when I was um, younger or just, you know, unaware. Um, And so, you know, while what we went through was incredibly hard, I certainly don't regret um, being less ignorant. Um, And we continue to learn and our understanding of this continues to grow more complex And the more we learn, the more convinced I am that the legal system has no place in the way we build our families and the way we um, navigate our reproductive lives. Like, I I just know it in my bones. I know it from everyone that I've met and um, the stories that I've heard. And that's just something that I just couldn't possibly have known before. And that that's a gift. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. 
Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.